Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Metro Atlanta. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. We are glad to have you with us. It is episode number 101. Congratulations, Patrick. 101. That's... We made it. <laughs> we were just trying to do one at a time and then see what would happen. Right on, right on. We are, we are popping bottles and, and having celebrations all over the place here right. in the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast studio, i.e. my house. And just to clarify, we're popping bottles of Gatorade yeah, and, yeah, well. uh, you know, you can tablet chews, all that yeah, jazz. Yeah, what, 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 what do you think otherwise? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, very good. Uh, well, we did. We didn't want to let the occasion of our 101st episode, or of our 100th episode, really, of our of our first 100 episodes in the can here, go by without taking a little bit of time to reflect on on the podcast that we've done so far here. And we weren't going to do this type of podcast where we actually go back and sample uh, our our what we said before um, because we don't have that level of technical proficiency. Um, but or we could say it's because we just want to give the people what they want and give them new content. Content. That's right, new content, absolutely. And so, with that in mind, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Yeah, yeah. Don't let people see behind the curtain. <laughs> um, but uh, but we did want to say our favorite things here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so so we were talking before about how we actually wanted to frame our reflecting on the first 100 episodes here, and 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 how is it we're going to frame it here, Patrick? So you know, one of the interesting things is so so first of all, we even started this podcast, right? I joined this podcast because you and I for for months before we even started talking together. Would trade back, you know, messages about research that we had read. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're both running nerds. We both enjoyed kind of diving into the research and and talking about new trends and and new changes and new training methods and kind of how one coach will build on what another coach is doing. And you know, we we love that stuff. Right. Um. W- without this podcast, we would still be be training you know messages. And then you know, one of the interesting things is, in you know, reading the new research that we present on this podcast, in presenting the the, the topics and the, the kind of takeaways that we have mm-hmm. and in presenting the news, we learn ourselves. We learn as coaches. We learn as athletes. Right. And we get to incorporate those changes or those new pieces of research or those new layers of understanding into our own actions. Right. And we can apply them to our behavior as, as athletes and we can apply them to um, the training methods that we prescribe to our athletes. Right, right. So it, it makes for a very interesting um, dynamic because, you know, this is very much a case where we are learning and we are kind of broadcasting new ideas that we're learning. And then we're also incorporating those, those new methods into our own life. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not, you know, do as I say, um, not as I do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very much we are kind of on the learning path with our listener. Right so on. then we were just kind of trading emails a, a few weeks ago about, well, what do we want to do as a retrospective? And, and I think at the track you just said something to the effect of, hey, I've learned a lot doing this podcast and, and kind of having to really – crystallize and articulate all the different things I've learned over the years Mm -hmm. and then we came up with the idea of well let's talk about what we have learned in doing research for this podcast we can talk about some very specific pieces of research that we that kind of blew us away Mm -hmm. and then that we really took into our own lives and incorporated into our own lives and that made us kind of better people better coaches better athletes right on Right on. Um, you know, and, and and Patrick and I, as we were preparing for this particular podcast, talked about how there are things that we've read and things that we've discussed over the course of the past two, three years here mm-hmm. that are things that maybe we kind of knew, 
but it wasn't until we read it in research and had it articulated for us that we kind of moved it to the front of our uh, of our minds and made it into something that we incorporate into our our daily lives as athletes and as coaches um and so so there, there's kind of a lot of different things here along the way um but without further ado let's go ahead and jump into it um uh we have six or seven things here that I, that um like Patrick said, they're the stuff that has stood out to us the most over the course of our first 100 episodes here. So in no particular order, we should say these are not necessarily the most important changes, the most important things that we've talked about by any stretch, but um, but the stuff that we feel like that stands out when we reflect back over this first 100 episodes. So the first one we're going to talk about is when it comes to running in the heat, which is apropos here that we're uh, into the summer in Atlanta at this point um, and, and we're having to deal with running in the heat. Um, all the protocols that I apply around running in the heat um, I have now fully applied and I'm sure that you have as well Patrick and hopefully uh, all the folks that are listening here uh, in, in the Atlanta area or, or any other place where it might be hot are applying them as well. Now you'll remember we did a whole podcast on running in the heat um, about a year ago. Um, I, I want to say it was last summer, um, and it was basically saying, hey, it's starting to get hot. These are things you need to keep in mind. And in that podcast, we said that basically there are three things that are going to compromise your performance when it comes to running or, or training or racing in the heat. And this is true, obviously, for cycling as well. Not quite as true for, for swimming, even though um, there, there is some crossover there as well. Um, and those three things are, number one, dehydration, which gets all the headlines. Uh, number two, um, the, the skin temperature. Um, and number three, your core temperature. Um, and it's that third one, I think, that, that we tend to often overlook. A lot of us will run through sprinklers or dump stuff over our head, and that serves to cool your skin. And of certainly, of course, all of us tend to drink sports drinks or tend to drink water when we're racing or when we're training. Um, however, if your core temperature um, is raised up really, really high. It can be, as I said at the time, almost like running with a fever, and that compromises your body's ability to operate efficiently. Um, and, and if your body is running at a very high core temperature, uh, which it's more likely to do if it's hot outside, um, then you're not going to be able to produce the way that you want to be able to produce on the bike or on the run on your race day or on your training day. Um, and so there are things you can do to actively lower your core temperature, and that's something you should do. Um, one metaphor that I actually saw for this when we were doing the research for it said that that a lot of people try to, to, they, they try to address things only by um, drinking more and more and more and more and more. And that only addresses one of the three. That only addresses dehydration. Um, and so you also have to address cooling the skin and lowering your core temperature. Now, you can address two of them at a time, but, but that's an important thing you might. So in thinking about this particular research and thinking about this particular approach that we talked about in our running in the heat, I realized that one thing that I often did, my standard practice before the Sunday long runs, many of which I was doing with you, Patrick, um, a lot of the trail runs we would do is that I would get up in the morning, I would put in a mobile order at Starbucks, I would leave the house, I would pick up my mobile order of 20 ounces of hot tea with a little bit of caffeine, a little bit of caffeine, a little bit of milk, and a little bit of sugar in it, um, and I would drink that before the run. We were going out in the summer, and I was drinking hot tea, 20 ounces of hot tea, within 30 to 40 minutes of even 15 to 20 minutes sometimes of when we were starting our run. That was serving in turn to raise my core temperature which meant that I was starting the run with an elevated core temperature. Um, 
it's one of those things, like I said, that seems kind of self-evident. I probably should have recognized that, but I just never did until we actually talked about it on the podcast. Um, and so I changed that mobile order. And, and now when it gets hot during the hot months, I actually order iced tea instead. Uh, I drink that and it lowers my core temperature such that I actually begin the runs with a uh, decreased core temperature and I'm able to make it a little bit better through the run. Um, in the summer 2016 and in the summer 2017, I had at least one, if not more than one run where I really, really struggled because of the heat yeah and in in the summer of 2018 i had no runs that were failures no long runs that were failures as a result of the heat um and i'm expecting something similar for 2019 very good and yeah and i will say i actually incorporated that same research into my own uh behaviors because i didn't wake up and, and drink hot tea necessarily but i drank hot coffee that was kind of my right. morning routine uh it kind of helped kind of uh, wake me up and get me kind of mentally ready and physically ready to to go for a long run mm-hmm. or you know a run around the track etc and since that research i started preparing iced coffee the right. night before the race right or no, the night before the workout because it, as you said once you have that that hot tea or that hot, hot cup of coffee you're already putting yourself in a bit of an, a heat debt so to speak right. and kind of setting yourself up uh, for less than optimal performance. And to me, kind of the, the, the broader takeaway too is to think about, you know, when, when looking at core body temperature, it, that's something where you need to take a proactive approach before you get to that workout in the heat. Right. And you need to think about, you know, what, what kind of house am I sleeping in? Am I sleeping in an air conditioning house? Am I under a bunch of blankets or something? Mm-hmm. And then you're almost starting the, the morning or the day um, at an elevated core, you know, body temperature. Right. So, you know, that was certainly one that, that I certainly incorporated as well because it, it, it kind of broadened your, your perspective from, okay, it's hot. What do I do to survive during this hot workout right. to how do I prepare myself to be ready for this? Right. In addition to drinking water and eating fruits, which I think you and I had done already and had done mm-hmm. for years and mm-hmm. had done, you know, for as many summers as we trained here in Georgia right. to then think about, not only prepare yourself by making sure you're hydrated, um, but to also make sure you keep your temperature down yeah. before you even start. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Very good. Give us another one. Uh, so this one will be a shock to anybody who uh, has listened to the <laughs> podcast. Um, but I obviously was on a big sleep research kick in, in 2018. Um, and a lot of the research that I you know brought to the podcast was about and, and focused on the effects of sleep and how it really – is the ultimate recovery tool for athletes right. and endurance athletes specifically. Um, so I want to go kind of over a, a few different um, takeaways we, we, we brought from those the sleep uh, rabbit research hole. studies. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, first and foremost, so we did the, we looked at the meta-analysis, which for those of you who are not familiar with that academic term, it, term what a meta-analysis does is it looks at all the previous research on a given topic and tries to come to a conclusion based on the research from all the all the previous studies, right? And right. kind of pull them together and say, what's the general trend here? Uh, well, that you know meta-analysis found that um, when looking at sleep and looking at recovery, you know, is it better to have six hours of quote-unquote high-quality sleep on like a nice, comfortable bed and nice dark room, et cetera, or is it better just to have a high quantity of sleep, right? Can you make up a a lack of quantity with higher quality, right? And that would be a, a nice finding it for a lot of busy professionals who right. don't have much time to sleep. Right. And they found that when it comes to sleep, quantity trumps all. Right. I mean, it really is, you can't, 
you know, run faster or sleep faster or sleep better to overcome right. sleep dead. You have to really just put in the time and put in the hours. Increasing your sleep hygiene does not increase, uh, d- does not replace uh, sleep quantity. So sleep hygiene was a word that I learned uh, on that particular day that you talked about it. But yeah, quantity. Matters. There we go. I wonder if they'll use that on like the next like mat- mattress pad at, uh, <laughs> ad or anything increase like your, that. Incre- increase your sleep hygiene. Yeah. I had never heard it until you mentioned that podcast that day. Um, so, yeah, keep going. And to me, that really changed my mindset because it really focuses focuses you in on look. There's not much you can do other than just making sure you get plenty of sleep as yeah. often as possible. Yeah. Now, but that being said, another one of the studies that you mentioned when you were talking so much about sleep last year um, had a pretty important impact on my approach as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I totally agree that that meta-analysis about quantity mattering most uh, was, was super important. But in addition, you also found a study that said that as little as 20 minutes of increased quantity can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And to me, that felt really, really huge. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think so often when we hear about sleep, we're like, oh, well, you have to sleep for eight hours and, and eight hours sleep or else, you know, you're not getting your, and, and yeah, okay, eight hours of sleep is really, really good, but, but it's not totally realistic for a lot of us, right? Um, yeah, it feels like an unattainable goal. Right, right. And it's like, what the heck with that? I'll yeah. never reach that. And so, 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 yeah, so if you're at six hours, you know, and, and say six to seven hours is your standard, and somebody says, hey, you have to sleep for eight hours, it's like, well, I'm not going to get eight hours because then I would either lose my job or neglect my kids, or I would just not be an endurance athlete anymore because so many of us get up early in the morning in order to be able to, to, to do all this stuff, right? Um, to me, the idea that, no, just sleeping a little bit more, even 20 minutes makes a difference, that was a crucial idea because it says, okay, if you're sleeping six hours, that's fine try and sleep six hours and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. If you're sleeping seven hours, that's fine. Try and sleep seven hours and 20 minutes, right? Because mm-hmm. sleeping just incrementally more, just slightly more can actually make a difference. And I thought that was important. And I'll tell you where that really affected my behavior as well. Very rarely do you say to yourself, I'm either going to go to bed at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock, mm-hmm. right? You, you re- very rarely have a big enough um, actionable difference to go from six hours to eight hours. Right. But you can say to yourself, all right, do I want to watch one more episode of this show on Netflix? Right. Or do I want to get an extra 30 minutes of sleep? Exactly. Or do I want to read this one more chapter of my book? Or do I want to just prioritize sleep and really get to bed exactly. right now? Yeah, exactly. No, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I mean, for me, if you were to say, hey, George, you have to sleep eight hours and 30 minutes a night, it just wouldn't happen. Right. It's just not going to happen. Um, but if you say, hey, George, you should try and, and just prioritize it, like you say, and just try and get as much more as you possibly can, Twenty, even just 20 minutes is good, that made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it made a big difference exactly in the way that you're describing. Hey, do, do we want to watch one more episode of Vice Principles? No. Um, let, right. Let's just go ahead and go to sleep. Um, you know, Am I going to try and push through and read one more chapter of this book? No. I'm just going to go ahead and put it away and go to sleep here. Um, yeah, I think that's that, that, that was a huge important difference. And then, and then to build on that finding as well, I can't remember which study it was that showed, you know, when, you know, peaking for a race, it's or trying to kind of put in a command performance. It's not mm-hmm. about getting sleep the night before. Mm-hmm. It's not about getting sleep the week before. Right. It's not even about getting sleep the month before. It's about getting sleep the three months prior, and how mm-hmm. and that kind of cumulative effect yeah. of getting a high quantity of sleep. Yeah. So the study that you're talking about, and that was actually the, the other sleep study I wanted to mention while we were on the topic of sleep here. So uh, the quantity matters most. As little as 20 minutes makes a difference. The 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 last of the sleep studies that really stood out to me of the ones that you mentioned, uh, and the one that I've used again as an athlete and as a coach is to say that 
okay, it's not just about the week of the race, it's about a month out from the race as well. Um, because the study that you had actually, I think it was with soccer players. Um, That's correct. And and they basically measured the sleep of people of two different groups, one of whom got a lot more sleep the week of and one of whom uh, got a whole, whole lot more sleep the month before. And, and the people that did the month before performed a whole lot better than just the week before, right? Um, that has affected me as a co- as an athlete because I've started saying, all right, I have a marathon in a month. I need to go ahead and start paying more attention to sleep now. Whereas I had in the past waited until the taper, essentially last you know eight to ten days. I'd said, okay, you know it's time to now start prioritizing sleep. Well, no, you need to start prioritizing sleep a lot farther out. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I'm glad we talked about it on the podcast because my wife got on board with that, too. <laughs> um, and, and, and she helped me to prioritize sleep over the course of the last month, particularly before Philadelphia. Had a hard time with it before before Flying Pig. And in fact, I was nervous before the Flying Pig Marathon that I hadn't slept enough in the several weeks leading up. Um, but everything turned out OK. Um, as a coach, I have an athlete who right now is competing in the race across America. Um, and I talked about him at the intro to a podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, his name is Thomas Odom. Um, during the race across America, you sleep very little. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so a month out, and, and then you have to do a lot of, um, uh, he had to do a lot of really, really long rides, including like multiple day rides where he deprived himself of sleep as a, as a means of preparing himself for the race across America. Um, and you know he did an 18 hour ride he did a 48 hour ride you know stuff like that Whew. right um where he would start on friday in afternoon and finish on sunday afternoon right um and given that the research that you had cited about a month that was where where it matters more i had told him we need to finish up all of the sleep deprivation stuff a month out mm-hmm. um and come may 15th you really need to make sure that you're you're sleeping more now. That's that's actually going to be a priority. So rather than putting it off and like maybe trying to squeeze in one more big sleep deprivation thing two weeks out, um, I said no. We're actually going to stop this at a month because that's your your sleep starts mattering a month out. Yeah. So I've so, I, so I've used it as a change in my coaching as well. Good. And, and one other thing I wanted to know: you talked about feeling a bit more anxious about lack of sleep after reading this research. Um, you know, for Flying Pig. You know, so one person actually you know reached out to me and said, hey. I know I don't get much sleep. I think it was a, the parent of like four young kids. Mm-hmm. And she said, look, this research on sleep is killing me because I trust <laughs> me, I want the sleep. I would yeah. give my right arm up to get more sleep. So I hope everybody kind of listens to this and knows what we're trying to do is just add ammunition to kind of give you a nudge to, to you know, um, prioritize it in your life. But we also fully understand there's some people, whether it be they're in a mm-hmm. certain life situation where they just can't get sleep. For sure. It's part of the deal, just like you mentioned. So For sure. I just want to note that because I do think that is important that we're not trying to guilt trip anybody oh, yeah, or no. of that nature. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm glad you said that. At the same time, that's the reason why that as little as 20 minute thing was so, so, yeah. so pivotal. Mm-hmm. Um, and was so critical, I thought, that, that when, when you shared that study, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I can't get much more sleep. Can you get 20 minutes? Yeah. Because at least maybe get 20 minutes sometimes because it's going to make a difference. Right. Um, so it doesn't have to be that, that, oh, you're getting six, you have to get eight. Well, right. I don't have two more hours to give. Right. You might have 20 minutes, or at least you can sometimes find that 20 minutes. Right. Um, yeah. 
All right, so third thing. Uh, third study was one that got a lot of attention in the back half of last year. Um, and it was in the New York Times, and Alex Hutchinson wrote about it on Outside Online. And I, 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 I want to say that Training Peaks might have even put it in their newsletter. I mean, it was like everywhere, I feel like. I saw it everywhere, uh, right about the time that we were talking about on the podcast. And, and that was the study that, that showed that doing only one set of strength work um, had or led to as many strength gains as doing three sets of strength work without the bulking up, without the muscular hypertrophy, um, which to me <laughs> was huge. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, that it, w- it was such a shocking study. That's the reason why it ended up in so many different places. Um, and so recall what they did. They took three different groups of, of people, and all the people were, were experienced athletes and people who had been lifting weights for at least a year or more. Um, and all of them lifted weights three times a week, and that's that's kind of important. Um, so we're not talking about just one time a week. We're talking about three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had one group of them do one set of seven exercises, another group do two sets of seven exercises, and then a third group do three sets of seven exercises. And they found that at the end of eight weeks, the group that did one set of strength work had the same strength gains as the group that did three sets of strength work. Now, the muscles got bigger for the guys and the girls who had done three sets of strength work. But for me, as an endurance athlete, that's an undesirable outcome. Yeah. I don't want my muscles getting bigger. I want my strength to, to increase. And so for them to say, hey, you can do one set of strength. And by the way, in the study, it took 13 minutes for them to do one set of strength. Whereas uh, with the with the three sets of strength, it took over an hour. It took like an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about saving an hour. There's, there's your hour to sleep more. Um, uh, by doing that three times a week, by doing just one set of strength um, of those seven exercises, you got the same strength gain. So for me, that was huge. Um, I have attempted to incorporate this, and it's hard. Yeah. Um, and I talked about it at the time that that maybe going to the gym for only fifteen minutes, kind of like who does that, you know? Yeah. Um, and and that if I'm going to make the gym day my workout that day, that I really want to go to the gym and spend some time there, you know? Um, but it's, go ahead. Yeah, because I was like, it's 30 minutes of traffic for 15 minutes of lifting. Right, right. Um, what I found is that I, I've been able to work in ways. Now, not every day. So I, I have been able to work in ways of like, I'll go and I'll run with a group on Thursday morning, and then I'll hang out with that group for a little while, and then I'll go to a gym to shower, but before I go to shower, I just do one quick lap and I do 13 to 15 minutes worth of strength work and there you go. You see what I'm saying? And so, so I've kind of figured out ways to sort of tack it on in other parts of my life. You know, I bought a kettlebell and a couple of dumbbells and, and I now do that at my house. You know, just a little bit of strength work, just one set of it, just kind of getting it knocked out. In addition to one kind of full-blown strength set every week that takes more than an hour. Right, uh, where I actually go to the CrossFit gym, actually, and, and, and do a lot of work there with, with, with some CrossFitters, right? Um, and so that's the way that I've kind of worked it in. I had one athlete who said, hey, that sounds awesome. I want to try it. He did it for about three weeks and actually couldn't keep it up. Just going to the gym that often to only be there for 13 minutes to 15 minutes, it just, it just wasn't worth the payoff. Like you're saying, 30 minutes of driving for 15 minutes worth of work. Um, and it also doesn't mentally sit well with us either, does it? As endurance athletes, we want to spend time, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I still am working on this. It's still a work in progress. Um, but I do think I'm a stronger person as a result of doing only one set of everything, but just doing it more frequently. 
Yeah, so this was one I was nervous to incorporate into my own um, training routine. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. interested to hear a bit more about your experience. But one of the the kind of issues I would notice, so I would just say, I usually do, do the three reps, the standard three or three, three sets, sets, excuse mm-hmm. me. Um, and one thing I notice, I usually lift after work. Mm-hmm. And the first set, it, it clearly ties back into research we're going to touch on later mm-hmm. about mental fatigue. Yeah. And that first rep or the first set, I am not lifting nearly as much as I need to yeah. be because you're almost having to warm up your mind and your body into the yeah. idea of going hard and really kind of yeah. struggling to get get the bar up and where yeah. it needs to be. So did you ever find that struggle to kind no, of to, absolutely. to intentionally jump into a workout yeah. right off the bat? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you you have to be you have to be ready to go, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so so yeah, it's only 13 minutes, but but yeah, you have to be ready to go. You know, and and it's funny because I I'll do it now, and I feel always I feel like people are looking at me because I'm just walking around the the gym. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just walking from place to place. You know, I feel like I'm constantly moving, and and you know you put all these weights onto the the leg press machine, and then you pull them all back off. You know, but yeah, you have to be ready to go, and it has to be heavy there from the start. So like to that point, um, you know, like you say, if you were to lay down on a bench to do a bench press, for example, mm-hmm. and you get into your first set and say you're going to do three sets of six, right? You do your first two or three reps in your first set of six, and and you realize it's probably kind of light. That's not a big deal. You just go ahead and finish the set. You put a few more pounds on it for the next set, and you're good to go, right? Um, with one set of strength, if you're only doing one set, I found that if I do two reps and it's not heavy, I got to stop, and then I got to put more weight on it and then start over again, right? Um, and so you do have to be a little bit more aggressive, both in terms of you got to be ready to go when you start. Um, and if, if you're not lifting enough, you only have one set to get it right, <laughs> you know, um, and so you better get it right. And so that means stopping partway through if you realize that you're not actually lifting enough weight because it does have to be pretty heavy if you're only lifting one set. Yeah, yeah that's that's different. It's a different mindset than yeah. kind of casually going into the gym, changing out of your work clothes and yeah. kind of yeah. figuring out that first set. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, and, and a lot of times, you know, in that first set, if, if I was doing three sets, you get to like rep number, say you're doing six reps, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what we've talked about, which is about what you should do. Um, say you do six reps, you finish that sixth rep, you could probably do six more, right? And that, I mean, you'd really be maxing out, but you could probably do six more. Um, the protocols on the study that led to the findings that we talked about, um, showed that that this is like eight to ten reps of a 12 rep max and so you're talking about your those last couple of reps are getting pretty hard yeah right um when i do a bench press i pretty much do it until i'm not confident that i would be able to do one more Mm -hmm. without help um and so so you're talking about you know not to failure per se but 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 you're lifting very heavy um just for a very short period of time yeah that's Mm. interesting that's a different mindset for sure for sure yeah. All right, well, glad you provided that feedback, too, because, like I said, that's one I hadn't quite incorporated, but it sounds like this new routine could certainly work in your favor, Yeah. you know, given, you know, whatever personality type the athlete has or that yeah. you have. Yeah, to me, to me, it's about, I mean, you're effectively talking about you're stopping by the gym. Yeah. You know, and so, so it's about trying to figure out ways you can stop by the gym. Yes, you know? and I would say, too, like, if you work in a place where that, there's yeah. a gym in your workplace. Yeah. This makes it infinitely easier. Yeah. You can go in and do a workout in 20 minutes yeah. like yeah. and maybe 30 minutes total to change, do the workout and then change yeah. back in the work clothes. That's yeah. a big difference. Yeah. That that was really kind of who I felt like this benefited the most is people yeah. that had gyms in their workplaces. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. All right, what else? 
All right, so my next um, article is about um, excuse me, the, the, the piece of research that I think really helped articulate something that we already knew as coaches, but really kind of helped. Um, you know, it changed me though, but yeah, scientific I agree um, you know evidence of something that we already knew or kind of had a gut feeling about is the the research that you presented about you know increasing mileage and you know how do injuries occur and what they found was that injuries occur you know when building mileage too quickly rather mm-hmm. than when building mileage period when holding so high mileage when, yeah. hi, when holding high mileage mm-hmm. so the point is that i remember in high school a lot of times we were told like okay you can't run more than 70 miles a week because then you'll break mm-hmm. right it was almost like once you reach a certain mileage limit your body would just break down right but it wasn't so much or at least based on this study it's not so much about the mileage you're running at at a steady pace or at a, at a steady clip so to speak but how quickly are you going from zero to 70 or how right. quickly are you trying to increase your um your mileage because the body can adapt mm-hmm. um it just takes a lot of time right and so you have to increase your mileage you know slowly and steadily more so than um you know trying to jump into this this level that you want to reach right so to speak so that was the one i you know, the next one i wanted to mention because i thought it was a very interesting um change of how you you frame coaching how you frame mileage from you know, we have a limit on how many mileage miles we can run. To we have a limit on the rate of change, right? In terms of the number of mileage right. we can run. Yeah, I agree with you. This was one that was that was important for me to read as well, um, because and, and it's changed the way I act as a coach. But honestly, it hasn't changed the way I act as an athlete just yet. Okay. Um, and so, it, it was important for me to read because I, we've always known, you know, the so-called ten percent rule that you don't want to add more than ten percent at a time and, and all that sort of thing, right? And so, so everybody always knows that that doing things too quickly can kind of get you injured. For me specifically, when it when it why it matters is thinking about coming back after a race, yeah, right. And so, and what and what you do actually immediately following a race, right? So what this suggests. Or the practice that this would suggest is that in the week following a race, that that say you run a marathon, that that you would still kind of try and run a little bit, and then the week after the week after the race, so two weeks after the race, you would try and start running a little bit more in order to not let the mileage drop off too much, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, because then come six weeks, seven weeks back after the race, if you haven't really run all that much over the course of that six to seven weeks the rate of change to go from you know 10 miles to 40 miles or something like that it's that rate of change is actually going to get you injured right whereas if you had simply stuck at 40 miles the whole time that's that's less likely to get you injured right that 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 has been a big change for me because i'm i'm and i'm a huge advocate for post target race recovery on this podcast um financial recovery social recovery mental recovery um, sleep uh, recovery, sleep recovery, um, family recovery, professional recovery. I think I already said financial recovery, um, physical recovery, of course, too. Right, mental mm-hmm. recovery. I mean, all these things are super duper important to recover after this big, huge target race that you've poured so much of yourself, and your family has been forced to pour so much of themselves into. Um, and so, I've always kind of taken what I call this, this sort of bingey purgey approach. You know, mm-hmm. that that I pour everything into this race, and then the race is done. It's like, whew done and it's like i don't run and i don't do anything for a week and and i drink a bunch of beer and eat a lot of ice cream mm-hmm. you know and and this has kind of made me think about all right is that a really unhealthy thing for me to do because then come 
four weeks after the race, I'm having to, to try and get back in shape. And, and I'm subjecting myself to a great risk of injury uh, four weeks out from the marathon um, because I'm, I'm turning things up so, so quickly. Um, like I said, that's changed the way I approach things with my athletes. Mm-hmm. The stuff I put on their schedules, the conversations I have with them following their big, huge target races is different than it was. Yeah. I have not quite successfully changed that myself yet. Interesting. <laughs> um, because, because I, and, and I did resolve after the Philadelphia Marathon last year, um, or I, I did resolve after Flying Pig this year, not to fall off a cliff the way I did with the Philadelphia Marathon last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I don't, you have to give me a few more weeks before I'm going to be able to say whether I did that effectively yet or not. But, mm-hmm. but, I, but I have been trying to be more mindful uh, since the Flying Pig Marathon to, to not just completely stop everything for a long period of time and then suddenly turn it back up quickly right. to, try and, to try and, you know, go from it being a 10, turning it down to five and then slowly turning it back up to 10 as opposed to being a 10, turning it down to one and then jumping it back up to eight. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And I would say that's a change that that's kind of, you know, we're seeing it more and more throughout the endurance world mm-hmm. um, with high level athletes, all the way down to, to high school athletes, mm-hmm. even where they're taking less of that, you know, binging and purging um, approach to, to training and racing yeah. that they, yeah. they, they used to. Mm-hmm. And I, but I, I think it's difficult though. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, because if you take that real, that real super big target race approach, then and and you want to have your absolute best performance at that big huge target race it is going to drain you a lot physically and financially and mentally and and socially you know it is going to take that and so you do need to recover those things and i still advocate for a lot of recovery there but how do you recover all of those things but not let things slip so much that when you start trying to rebuild you're going to be subjecting yourself to a huge risk right that's and i don't think i figured that out as an athlete just yet mm-hmm. um, and that's the reason why i haven't done it yet um, Which right. transitions just nicely into your next uh, study, actually. <laughs> Does it? The one about performance after watching something draining? Yeah, um, about right. mental fatigue. So there you go, mental fatigue, absolutely. Um, and so this one, this next one actually goes back to, and this is something that, that has emerged as a huge theme in uh, exercise science over the course of the past few years anyway. Um, and it was the primary topic that we talked about when we interviewed Alex Hutchinson. Um, and, and that's the link between the brain and the body. Right. And and I talked about that three years ago, more than three years ago now on one of the very first podcasts we did before Patrick even came on. We might not have had theme music yet at that point, um, but about the the way that your brain has a profound impact on what your body can do. And we had always in the past thought about, oh, well, you know, you can you can. For your brain can 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 your mind over matter. You know your 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 brain can force your body to do things your body doesn't want to do, and that's actually not actually the relationship between your brain and your body. Right. Um, that your brain actually can hold you back, and so in some ways it has to be your brain over your brain, or you even have to trick your brain, as we've talked about, right? Um, and so with that in mind, one of the most interesting studies to me. Um, about that uh, is one that I've even referenced a few times over the course of the past few years since I talked about it on the podcast for the first time was the the, the study that they did um, where for 90 minutes prior to a maximal cycling test they showed either cartoons or a Holocaust documentary to a bunch of, of, of athletes um, and as you would imagine, watching cartoons is far less mentally taxing than watching a Holocaust documentary. Um, and then they took them directly from there, put them on the bikes, warmed them up, and had them had them 
uh, do a maximal time trial. Um, and not surprisingly, those who had watched cartoons, i.e. those who were mentally rested, who had not put out a great deal of, of mental energy, um, were able to, to perform higher there on those tests. Um, and I think that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's super important uh, for those of us who work jobs and then have to go work out afterwards and maybe have a, a tough workout at the end of the day um, after we've, we've uh, been doing something else. Um, if we have you know, a lot of stress in our life and something terrible happens and then we're supposed to do a hard workout, um, it's important to, to keep in mind how being mentally fatigued as a result of an emotional experience um, can, in fact, impact our, our physical ability in our workouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you have to add about that? Yeah, absolutely. To me, this might have been one of the most impactful studies we, we've discussed so far because... I think it was a very elegant study. I, I think it just really paints that relationship between the brain and the body so well. Yes. I think that, that's one of the reasons why it stuck with me. Keep going. And it gives credence to what we probably have felt for years as athletes, mm-hmm. where yeah. we had a hard day at school, and then we had to put in a hard track workout. Or yeah. we had a hard day at work, and then we had to try to find a way to put in a, a hard... Uh, effort, and you know one of my big takeaways from from this particular study is, as you mentioned, one there is no such thing as mind over matter. You know there is no such thing as you know mind over body and kind of having your mind right. take control. They're they're interconnected. Mm-hmm. So that's that's first things first, and kind of from a bit more of an application or a functional perspective. You know sometimes I know, especially when I was younger, I would kind of give myself a hard time if maybe I had a long day at school. And then I tried to put in a good workout and it just didn't work. Yeah. But sometimes instead of giving yourself a kick in the butt, what you need is a pat on the back and just say, look, you've had a long day. You've you've taken on more than you can right now. So we need to, to cut this off and rest and be ready to go next time. Yeah. And that's a very different approach than the old school. Um, Toughen up. You know, keep going, no pain, no gain, HTF, yada, yada. HTFU. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's really changed my perspective and then we even talked about you know a, another study where they really tried to hone in on what is mental fatigue mm-hmm. and you know what, what's the cause of mental fatigue and they kind of nailed down um, the cause or they've kind of pinned down or attributed the cause to a brain chemical called adenosine mm-hmm. and they talked about how it builds up in your brain it actually is mm-hmm. flushed out when you sleep and mm-hmm. the longer you sleep kind of the more mm-hmm. time your brain has to flush it out mm-hmm. um, and adenosine is almost like the lactic acid of your brain like it almost kind of you know, it, it clogs it up and, and you know, it makes it hard to um, get motivated for things. It also increases perceived effort for the same task that didn't feel so hard prior to the mental fatigue setting in. So that really kind of helped. Once I knew there was a physiological or kind of scientific reason for what I was feeling, that helped kind of remove the chains of this is not something that's just in my head, or it is in my head, but it's in my head because it's a brain chemical, not because it's in my imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found it incredibly enlightening and almost kind of liberating to know that, you know, when fighting against mental fatigue, when you're feeling tired at the end of the long day, when you can't quite seem to hit your, you know, your pace and a hard 400 workout or something at the end of a long day, there's a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And, and when there's a reason, then you can start to address it as opposed to just saying, well, I hope next time goes better. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. Um, we're going to talk about adenosine again in a couple of weeks because I, I happened upon a, a very interesting thing about adenosine triphosphate, ATP, which is one of the primary um, energy production processes in your body mm-hmm. uh, that, that I want to talk about soon. But, but, but yeah, very good. Very good. Um, it's changed, I should say, too, not just the way that I approach my own training, but as a coach, um, I, I now am much more mindful of 
not only the the mental aspects of a workout when it comes mm-hmm. to my athletes, you know, what is going to give them mental rejuvenation. Um, and I actually, if, if somebody says, I really want to do this run with these people because I think it'll be a positive thing for me, I think it'll make me very happy. Good point. I, I, I tend to make those key workouts now. Um, I think that, that that's one thing I tend to do with it. But another thing I tend to do a lot more is if I have, an, and I've, I've always kind of, and this I guess falls into the, the something we've always sort of sensed that we did. Um, I've always kind of said, all right, I, I don't want to, I don't think you should, should train for a big major race when your life is really stressful and you know, it's going to be really stressful. Like, you know, uh, a, a school teacher shouldn't choose a marathon or a, or an Ironman that is a month after the start of school because it's a, for a difficult month. Right. You know, and so a very stressful month. Um, if and you're so, in tax audits, you shouldn't do an April marathon. So, so yeah, if, if possible, because I know there's at least one person who listens who does a lot of tax audits who's doing Boston next year. So, um, so if possible. Um, but at the same time, even if that is your situation, if you know that, kind of plan around it, mm-hmm. right? Um, I know that if there's people I, – I, I have athletes who I coach that, that they have very stressful Tuesdays. I don't give them a really hard workout on Tuesday evening because I know that, that even though they've been sitting most of the day – even though physically they won't be tired, the fact that they're going to be mentally drained from their difficult Tuesday means that they're not going to be able to produce as much on their Tuesday night workout. Right. Uh, and so I don't give them a hard workout on that. I, I save that for a time when they're they're more mentally fresh. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important. Yeah, you make a great point that it almost goes both ways to where you can say, all right, when will you be more happy and relaxed and not have the same fatigue? All right, yeah. we're going to put the hard workout there. Yeah. And it also means being mindful to say, look, if you have like a long road trip or something on mm-hmm. Friday, mm-hmm. we're not doing a hard workout that Friday night. Because yeah. even though you've been sitting in a car right. all day, you're mentally drained from having to focus on the road yeah. and focus on driving, things yeah. of that nature. Yeah, and in and, and my own personal kind of you know training as an athlete, I've totally changed my approach to training to where it's like, all right, on Tuesdays need to be speed or Thursdays need to be tempo or Saturdays mm-hmm. need to be this because that's the best day of the week to do it. Yeah. To saying, all right, what is my schedule going to look like? And when am I yeah. going to be too mentally fatigued to really yeah. put in a strong workout? Yeah. And then when would, I, when I be mentally ready to kind of get after it and put in the, the workout needed to um, get the benefits of a long tempo or hard track workout. Yeah. Right on. I do the same thing. Very good. Very good. All right. Next. This is uh, a, this is a fun one. This is everybody's favorite one. <laughs> this is a fun one. Yeah. Um, so this this is was the smiling study yeah. that found that smiling during a race, uh, believe it or not, actually improved running economy by about two percent. Right. Um, so that's a pretty significant improvement in uh, in your running economy. They oh, actually yeah. compared it to that two percent increase in running economy is about the same uh, increase in running economy you get by weightlifting mm-hmm. or by strength training mm-hmm. throughout your training cycle. Yeah. So it was pretty phenomenal. Talk about the link between the brain and the body mm-hmm. that just smiling can kind of help kind of relax your body, maybe you know, help kind of drain out some of that mental fatigue mm-hmm. and help you be more relaxed and then in, in turn doing so uh, improve your, your running. Um, they found- and, 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 and it's just smiling. Just smiling. That, 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 that's the thing about it that, that's striking. Yeah. Like literally you do nothing different in your whole life. You go into a marathon, you smile, two percent more efficient. And it's like, not like, you don't like, even have to be that happy. You could just say, "I'm not super happy right now, but I'm going to smile." And by smiling, kind of the muscle movements of smiling kind of help relax your your brain and body yeah. as if you were happy. Right. The the, the there's 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 a, a lot of different theories about why it is that it helps. One of them is that the coordinated um, 
the coordinated activation of all those varying muscles that take place in smiling yeah. does in fact have some sort of of chemical response in your brain and so so you, yeah like you say you don't even have to be happy you just have to to coordinatedly fire all those muscles at the same time yeah. what <laughs> yeah isn't that, isn't that crazy yeah and it changes it and what they found is that it changed their perceived effort yeah which is so fascinating yeah. i mean talk about the link between it's almost like the link between mind to brain mm-hmm. and then brain back to right. to body right um i mean it's it's it's, it's fascinating i said mind but i should have said it's muscles to to brain brain to body um well and it and it's fascinating too because because perceived effort okay so that's how hard it feels yes right and so so a lot of times we're in when we're at the tough part of races we might say okay i that's where i really need to to get serious and really kind of knuckle down right this actually should kind of suggest the opposite yeah that, that when the race is starting to feel really hard if you smile it'll feel easier uh-huh. And so, so it's literally the opposite of what most of us normally do. Most of us say, "Oh, it's starting to get hard. Now I got to get serious." Right. I'm gonna grit my teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and instead, this is saying, "Hey, when it starts to get hard, put on a big old goofy smile, and it'll actually and make you two percent more efficient and reduce your perceived effort." Yeah. And and here's the other thing too. So, the idea of improving running economy is really hard. I mean, that is a trait that's notoriously yeah. difficult to fix or to improve. I mean, right. you can't say to yourself, all right, I'm going to do like running form drills and then just significantly improve your running economy. I mean, right. we've, we've talked about in the past, but then smiling and kind of priming this more relaxed emotional state, that's what helps your economy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just not something... Like even telling it, you can't help but kind of question it because it just seems so hard to believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. This one this one definitely got widespread attention too. Yes, this was one of those so like the one set strength thing. This is the one that was like it was in the New York Times. It was in yeah. It was in all these different places where you don't normally read about running on or running research. Yeah. So here's another little kind of tidbit I, I love from this study. Um there were some subtle differences or some subtle gender differences. Hmm. Uh, you know, as an absolute surprise to no one, uh, it was found that men claimed that the pace was easy. <laughs> Even when it wasn't, yeah. if they were asked by a female scientist, right, right. Like, yeah, that's that's classic. That's academic right. jargon for saying men are full of it when they're asked by a woman to assess their right. own strength and right. efficiency. Right. So. Yeah, that that was one of the flaws that was pointed out in the study because that because that's been noted in other studies as well <laughs> is that that men tend to tend to fudge about their perceived exertion if it's a woman that's asking them about it. Super. Um, yeah. Good job, fellows. Um, very good. Well, all right. So I, the, the other thing I'll say about smiling while running is that I, I remember like every article was always accompanied by a picture of Elliot Kipchoge. Yeah. And we can't get to the 101st episode without talking about Elliot Kipchoge, but um, because he always kind of tends to look as if he's smiling a little bit. Yeah. I submit that's just sort of his default face. But, you know, I don't think he's actually actively smiling in all of those pictures that they showed. But at the same time, if that's his sort of default expression and if it makes you 2% more efficient, well, maybe that's that's part of it for him so but that's merely two percent mm-hmm. what gives you four percent the last thing we're going to talk about that's right of course you knew that we couldn't have a 101st episode uh retrospective here and and not mention uh vapor flies um, and mention shoes in general actually and mm-hmm. so as, as you and i kind of discussed it and we talked about it um we we, we kind of said well we, we literally put out a whole episode on the vapor flies Right. Um, and so we don't need to, to dive too deeply into those again. But I do think that we're at a place in shoes, which is a very interesting place. Um, mm. uh, I was joking with my in-laws recently. Um, they were giving my wife a hard time about the fact that she um, 
has joined this uh, clothing rental company called La Tote. So she rents clothes for a month and then sends them back. Hmm. Uh, and they were like, you okay with her just renting clothes and not buying them? I was like, she can rent all the clothes she wants to as long as I can keep on buying running shoes. Um, <laughs> because because there are so many shoes that I want to buy right now that I'm not I'm not even buying. Yeah. Like the Hyperverse phone that they have in Skechers. I'm fascinated to try those and I haven't tried them yet. You know, I, I want to try the New Balance 5280s, the carbon plated mile shoes. Mm-hmm. I don't even run the mile. Um, but I want to buy a pair of those shoes and try them out, you know. Um, and and of course the Vaporflies, I did buy a pair and I want to try those out. But but of course I merely have the Vaporfly four percent. Now I want to try out the next percents as well and see if how those feel different and 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 whether they in fact prove my performance. Um, we're just in an interesting place right now with shoes. Um, uh, and I'm more into shoes now than I think I've ever been before. Yeah, because and, and we talked about this, you know, in, in a previous episode where we talked about what beginners need to know about. St- when they starting running and, and buying shoes and about how, you know, in the past it was all about just running what feels good to you. Mm-hmm. Go to the running store, try five, six different pairs of shoes, find the one that, that feels good to you, and then just pick that one. And, 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 and you actually cited some research last year that showed that that's actually a decent means by which you can choose the right shoes. That, that if, you, if you base your shoe choices on comfort, then you're probably going to choose the right shoes, which I thought was an important piece of research that you shared last year i would argue it's probably the best heuristic we have Mm -hmm. with the one caveat that sometimes people tend to choose very light shoes Mm -hmm. and so you would say look don't try on the racers you know Mm -hmm. don't try on the racing flats Mm -hmm. those are going to feel the best when you're Mm -hmm. jogging in the parking lot Mm -hmm. um but the, the bigger point is for many many years really shoes were just there to help keep you running and the whole point of buying a new pair of shoes was to buy the shoes that would keep you running and keep you from getting injured. Mm-hmm. But then with the Vaporflies, they were the first ones to kind of turn everything on their head and say, we're not just trying to keep yeah. you running, we're gonna get you running fast. Yeah. And that is a much more fun proposition than, <laughs> oh, we'll just kind of disappear yeah. and keep you running and yeah. you'll forget about us and buy the next pair every yeah. three months or right. you know, whatever that your cadence is. Right. So it becomes much more fun to think about, man, how can we run faster? Right. And the other thing too is and faster than the other shoes in our category right that's that's the interesting thing about it to me because because okay we've known for a long time of course like racing shoes are faster than non-racing shoes okay got that but they're actually saying you should choose our racing shoes because our racing shoes are going to make you faster than the other racing shoes i think that's that's just such an interesting sales point and not something i mean so so you and i have been wearing racing shoes for years and years because we know those make us faster than our trainers but now we're actually choosing the racing shoes that we think are going to make us faster than the other racing shoes that's that's different and and the other part of that too is they're saying we will make you faster and here's why yeah so then we're getting getting to then except they're not saying why that's true which which, which is part of the fun of it too we keep going that's true but well the point is people like you and me can then can you know start to generate hypothesis for why are we running faster in these shoes right what is it about you know our muscles getting fatigued that this shoe is solving right. is it a specific muscle like you know or is it a specific tendon like the ankle tendons we've talked mm-hmm. about that mm-hmm. don't have to flex as hard and the, mm-hmm. the vapor flies as they do in, in normal running shoes mm-hmm. what is it specifically that's causing us to run faster over these longer distances right. in the vapor flies than we would otherwise in you know your regular running shoes or racing mm-hmm. shoes um and so it, then it brings it back to what is fatigue mm-hmm. and what is even yeah. you know what are our limits to um, endurance to go back to kind of Alex Hutchinson's primary question, driving question mm-hmm. in his book. What are the main prohibitors to um, human endurance? Yeah, yeah, and that and that in turn has has ramifications for training. 
mm-hmm. right? And so if we say, oh, okay, if these shoes can make me 4% more efficient and, and thereby uh, you know, 2% faster, 1.5% to 2% faster, um, how do they do that? And is that something that I can train in addition to, to getting the boost from the shoes as well, right? Right. Um, I, you know, three years ago when I had Will Kramer on this, on this podcast, he said that there was a big shift going on um, at that time with with shoes that it, that he was saying that that and it was he, he said it was a result of the minimalism and he said it was a really good thing he, I, he might have even said minimalism is the best thing that's ever happened to the shoe industry um, because it shifted us out of the mindset of prescribing a shoe for your foot that there is one white way to run one right way to run um, and we're going to put you in a shoe that makes you run that way mm-hmm. um, instead the body is is more naturally capable of running and we're going to put you in a shoe that's not so prescriptive but rather that that works better for you and right. and and i think what we've seen over the course of the past few years um is that 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 shift in thinking that ideological shift has opened up the 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 floodgates for shoes and so there's all these different threads of shoes now that that have these different purposes do yeah. you know what i mean and so it's not like you said it's not all about saying um it's not all about saying okay we're just going to try and keep you uninjured well yeah there's some that are there that if your primary purpose is to stay uninjured wear these shoes mm-hmm. and there's other ones that are 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 for racing short races for, i mean it's just I, I feel like there's there's just such a wider array of shoes that you can choose from now for specific functions and even for specific needs that you have right um and and personally i want to try all of them yeah and it's <laughs> fascinating because I mean, we certainly did not have the the choice of running shoes you do now i mean right. in the last 10 15 years the the other thing too is some people may look back and you know maybe try to backtrack via like Google or something and say, oh, we, no, you had a lot of running shoes to choose from. You didn't have a lot of high-quality running shoes to choose mm-hmm. from. Yeah. Now, I mean, it seems like just about every brand has four or five high-quality pairs of running shoes yeah. that you can choose from. Yeah. That, that are different from other people's running shoes. Right. You know, and, and that, that offer a, a different material and a different build and, and even a different philosophy about what somebody needs from their shoes. Right. Um, and, and you actually get to make your decision – based on all of those things now for some folks that can be bewildering um right. and so you do need to go to your local running store where they curate something for you and, and can help guide you through that process um for me i, I think it's fascinating mm-hmm. um and I'm, I'm definitely much more of a running shoe nerd than i've ever been before yeah very good does that cover us that was seven things Seven things. That's right. We did right. it. So seven things Very we've good. learned doing this podcast. Very good. I, re- I saw a research study one time that said that more people have their favorite number is seven than any other number. Hmm. How about that? Right? So one little bonus factoid there here at the end of episode 101. Well, I mean, most religions, seven's like the number of perfections. So. Is it? Nah, there you go. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, folks, by all means, reach out to us. Let us know what your favorite tidbits and factoids and moments are from the last 100 episodes of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. We appreciate your being with us for 100 episodes, and we look forward to the next 100. Patrick, the podcast definitely improved when you came on, and so I appreciate that, buddy. Appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. 
Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.